Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend. I'm sitting here with someone I'm very excited to talk to on my show, uh, and I know that you guys will be excited to hear him as well, because people have been asking for me to get him on the show for a long time. Ralph Garman. Hello. Hello. Thank you for coming to my very messy dining room. It's it's fine. I know you're in the middle of a move and you got a, you got a life inside you and you're very busy right now. Well, the truth is it's always somewhat messy, but now I just have more of an excuse for it. <laughs> and there's more cardboard involved yes, too. Yes, that's right. Versus your house, which is like a model home that some people and a fish live in. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife is very fastidious. I'm sort of the uh, the Oscar to her Felix. So I see. She keeps me in check and we have to keep the place pretty neat because she's built that way. Does that uh, cause tension for, no. her, for her? No. <laughs> for her it does, yes. Because <laughs> I think it looks good. And she's like, this clutter thing here. I'm like, what? It's like a stack of books in the corner. She's like, I know. that. Can we move those, please? I'm like, all right, fine. Oh, my God. Yeah, small price to pay. Her head would pop off if she were in here. All it is is clutter. She, actually, she would get to work right away, and you'd Bring be happy her to have her. Yes. Bring her over. Uh, so, so much to talk to and about. <laughs> <laughs> Baby brain. Oh, it's it's out of control. <laughs> it's like I did a podcast recently and I don't know, my, my fifth or sixth word I stumbled over, it was like, why did I even reach for a word that I wasn't 100% sure I was going to be able to pronounce? Yes. I need to stick with one and two syllable. Stay in your lane. Just the basics. Yes. Yes. So anyway, Ralph Garman, <laughs> so much to get into and to talk about. Um, I know you went to college in Pennsylvania, right? Philadelphia, yeah, my hometown. That's what I was going to ask. That's yeah. where you're from. Um, what was your childhood like? Uh, it was pretty uh, idyllic, and that has been, I think, a source of great strength and also um, of of a lot of problems for me as an adult because so? it was it was so great that I I am very nostalgic for my childhood and I haven't let go of a lot of it. I've got a big room full of my Batman toys and collectibles. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm kind of an Arrested Development guy. Um, but it really was ideal. Great parents who uh, loved each other very much. An older sister who I got along with. I mean, it was a middle class neighborhood, lower middle class neighborhood, but we never wanted for anything. And just, it's a, Philly's a great town. I just loved the city and the people. And it's just, it was really great. It was really a great childhood. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when did you decide you wanted to go into enter entertainment? Um... I know that I was putting on puppet shows for the other kids in kindergarten. I would take a table and put it on its side and I would get puppets, hand puppets out of the toy box and get behind the desk and put on shows for the kids. So, I mean, it goes that far back to early, early childhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure where that came from, but it's something I always enjoyed doing. I was the bane of my family's existence like every holiday when the families would get together because <laughs> invariably at some point during Thanksgiving or something, I would make everyone gather in the living room and have to put on a magic show or something <laughs> like that. So yeah, it was very early on. Uh, what did your parents do? My father was the uh, the district manager for distribution for Paramount Pictures. Oh. We were a showbiz family, even though you wouldn't think in Philadelphia that would right. be an option. But 
he was in sales for Paramount Pictures, where he it was his job to book uh, the feature films, the Paramount films, into theaters throughout the Central East Coast. So his um, his um, duties were over Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, that that part of the East Coast, and he was the branch manager for distribution for for Paramount. Mm-hmm. And my mom was a stay at home mom. Do you think uh, growing up in showbiz family? Uh, it's really a sales family more than a showbiz family, <laughs> right. frankly. I mean, my dad always said he could have been selling anything. It could have been shoes. It could have right. been pots and pans, but it just happened to be movies. Yeah. So. I'm just wondering if that, uh, you know, colored your decision a bit. I would think it have to because early on, I remember my father bringing home from the office uh, press kits full of eight by 10 oh, publicity cool. photos and soundtrack albums and big one sheet posters. I mean, I had the coolest poster collection of all my friends in my room because they were literally, you know, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Godfather. And it, it was, um, yeah, I think that probably had something to do with it is that I was exposed to movies and that world at a pretty early mm-hmm. age. So I just have to back up a minute and dig a little bit into the idyllic childhood that you say you have. Oh, okay. Had. Here we go. <laughs> I lay back on the couch. <laughs> uh, because I was just talking with Greg Fitzsimmons, who you and I were talking about before we turned on the mics. Yes. Um, he and I are starting a parenting podcast and we were talking, like we both, you know, have assorted gripes about our own childhoods. And then we were talking about what are our own children going to say about us in therapy. And mm. he feels like he just got his first inkling of, of what they might say. Whereas I, you know, Elliot's so young, I, I have no idea. You haven't but had a chance to screw him up yet. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, but I was saying to Greg that whenever I meet people who claim that they had a perfect childhood and that their parents are their best friends, no complaints, etc., I always think, oh, come on. Your complaints must must just be so submerged that you're not in touch <laughs> with them. Like to me, it's I don't even I don't understand how it can be possible that someone could have such a perfect childhood. Well, I never said perfect, but I said it's idyllic. idyllic. That's pretty perfect. Well, no, I mean, obviously any family has their issues, but in terms of, I mean, I, all I take away from my childhood are joy, are joyful memories, you know? It, literally, I lucked out in the sense that the, 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 the maybe the picky picayune, I wish this had been slightly different or that slightly different. It, it's just, it's just, you know, splitting hairs, really. There's no major trauma. There's no real big disappointments. You know, my father wasn't abusive drunk and my mother wasn't withholding affection. I mean, there's none of those big complaints that people have right. about families. It just really it was just a lot of love and fun. It's, it's hard. I'm sorry. But. Do you have darkness, anger, demons, anything like that? I think the only thing I may have had growing up in terms of anger or demons that fueled me was I was a fat kid. I and, was too. And that... um I don't want to say scarred me, but certainly colored my perception of the world and myself mm-hmm. and how I was and how I behaved. And uh, I think maybe get, being a funny kid, being the class clown, it was a part of deflection for that. You know, right. try to make people like you by being funny because you were insecure with your appearance. Or how, um, like, were you the fat kid in school? No, I was a fat kid, but I wasn't the fat kid. Mm-hmm. There were fatter kids than me. <laughs> <laughs> But I, but I, I was, I was probably more self-conscious about it than even usually you are, right? Whatever your flaw is, right. you see it more so than most people do. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I was probably more self-conscious about it than than other people. I don't remember being particularly picked on about it, or right? Picked, picked on about yeah. it. Um, but it was, it was, it was, a, it was a problem. It was a constant problem. Mm. And I think 
when I lost the weight in high school, uh, the summer between junior high and high school, and I came back, and then I started playing the lead in all the high school musicals and things like that. It was it was a significant shift for me in terms of of growing up. But um, but even being a fat kid, like my parents were super supportive and and understanding about that, and they did their best to kind of help me navigate those waters. I was never fat shamed at home or anything. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean. Obviously, no childhood is perfect, but I, I have a lot of great memories. How did you lose the weight? Um, I, I just started exercising my ass off, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that self-motivated? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, once you discover girls and you want to have sex with them, you want to put yourself in the best possible position to do that. And uh-huh. that's kind of what hit me. And I guess I was 15. And um, the girls loved me, but always in like the friend zone kind of way. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to change that. And also the big motivator, even more than women, which I always believe sex is pretty much the motivator for most things that most men do, <laughs> um, was the fact that in my high school, Northeast High there in Philadelphia, the school shows, the big musicals they did every year was one of the major events of the school. It was like the football team and then the school show. It involved like 10% of the student body and we had a full orchestra and sets and oh, wow. rented costumes. I mean, they were very into the arts. And so uh, I was it was a public school and I had gone to like we all did in my neighborhood, the feeder element, the elementary school and then the junior high school before you got to Northeast. So you and I having an older sister, you know, everybody would go to those shows even in the neighborhood. So knowing I was going into high school the next year, the following year and wanting to audition for those shows and be in them was a motivating factor to look more like a typical leading man type mm-hmm. or whatever that would be. You know? And you said that you played the leads in I the did. musicals. I did. I got my first year in. It was a three-year high school, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And in my first audition in 10th grade, I landed the lead. And that was, that was a, sh- a shockwave was felt through the school, I'll tell <laughs> what, you. Because a it? new kid had come in and taken right. the lead. It was unheard of. It's like the plot of a musical, really. <laughs> exactly. <yes. laughs> uh, what show was it? It was Sound of Music. I played Captain Von Trapp nice. in Sound of Music. Yeah. I just watched that. So Sound of Music is something that I'm sure everyone feels like they've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, super long. I yes. didn't realize there's an intermission in it. So I was watching it um, because I was showing it to my son because I'm on this mom Facebook group and someone was like, Sound of Music is amazing for little kids. It's like it totally keeps their attention, which Mm. because all we've really watched is Sesame Street up till now, but it really did hold his attention. Um, But I realized there's so much to that movie that somehow I, I thought it was all singing and yeah, I know there's a Nazi plot, but like I hadn't. There's so many scenes in it that I don't think I had ever actually seen. Maybe I was too young. I don't know. Like the whole... You're watching an abridged version? I, maybe I was. <laughs> maybe my parents stopped it at the intermission. I don't know. Like the whole love story. I thought it was really about a governess and kids who sing. Like I didn't realize it's, oh, there's a no, whole love yeah. story and and the escape mm. somehow. I mean, I knew about it, but like the, the no, actual... The triangle of Captain Von Trapp and the Baroness where she finally gives him up because he realizes that, that he's in love with Maria. Yeah. I mean, it's very sort of touching. I know. Yeah. I know. I had a whole new respect for her <laughs> when she said that she needs a man who needs her. It's very... Uh, yeah, there's a whole plot for adults as well. Um, what other shows did you do? Uh, first year of Sound of Music. Then the next year, the, the girl who was a year ahead of me who was sort of like the female star in all the shows she was she was going to leave. She was going to graduate. So they wanted to give her a, a, a send-off. So they gave her Mame. So we did Mame, which doesn't have a great role in it for guys. So I played um, 
one of Mame's husbands in that. Had a fun musical number, but nothing much. But one of my favorite Christmas songs is from Mame, I think, right? We Need a Little Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Which has nothing to do really with Christmas. They're singing it in the summer. Right. Because they're all depressed and they want to cheer up. So they they start decorating the house for Christmas. There's a a lyric, carols up the spinet. And Mm -hmm. I never knew what a spinet was until recently. It's like a a size of piano, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, So they did that with apologies to me. And they said... Don't worry, next year, when you're senior year, we'll make it up to you. And they did. I got to do Music Man. I got to play Harold Hill in Music Man. How cool. The best. Do you miss musical theater? I do. I do. I found so much joy in the process of doing musicals. I I used to race to rehearsal to, and I was never much of a dancer. I, I could move a little bit, but not much. But I could act and I could sing. And I found that doing both of those in front of a live audience is enormously fun, mm-hmm. really gratifying. And, and it was my first taste really of sort of success in that, in that avenue, you know? Did, did you pursue that beyond high school? Musicals. Musical theater? Yeah. Um, not really. I had decided at once, well, no, it's not true because I did in college, obviously. Uh, but college, we would do a musical and a straight play every year so I would do a musical and also then do either a drama or a straight comedy so once I started doing straight plays I recognized that I was more leaning towards television or film or something along those lines mm-hmm. theater as an option for me was not really ever on the table only because I didn't see that you could make much of a living at it so you're pra- you're practical yeah from a young age yeah I thought if I wanted to get into the entertainment field television or film would be my best bet because it seemed like you could make a better living at it and you want to be an actor yeah, from early on, mm-hmm. which, and again, I hate to puff up my childhood and my parents. But no, pl- feel free. Just despite what I said earlier, um, I I went to college on an on an academic scholarship, four year full boat scholarship to University of LaSalle, uh, LaSalle University. Yeah. yeah. So there were expectations there from my parents that I would get the acting thing out of my system, and then I would go on to law school because I was a pretty good student. And when I made the decision. First of all, I was, wasn't sure if I was even going to go to college because I said, I can go right to Los Angeles or New York and, and start working. And they said, no, you're going to go to college. And then when I got the uh, scholarship, I thought, even myself, I was like, it'd be ridiculous to turn down a free education. It'd be insane. And I'm so glad I did because college was a great experience. But um, towards the end of college, when they were hoping, I would sit them down and say, um, you know, I've, I've grown up. I sat them down and said, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to move to Los Angeles. That was my plan. And they were like, well, we don't love it, but we will absolutely support you in it and do whatever we can to make this road easier for you. So That's really nice. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that they were terrified, as any parent would be. Mm-hmm. Not only are their kids going to move 3,000 miles away, and no one in my family had ever left Philadelphia before. Oh, wow. Um, but also to know the hardships of what that kind of life can be. You know, it, I, it's so funny. You You don't... The magic thing, if you're young and getting in the entertainment business, really is the sheer stupidity and the, and the lack of awareness you are of what, how astronomical the odds are against you. you mm-hmm. know? I think if you really had a good sense of that, no one would really, and no sane person would get into this business. Right. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. But so anyway, they were like, we, we know it's going to be hard and we'll be there for you any way we can. And they were and they were for years. You know, occasionally I'd come up short on rent or I'd be in between gigs or something. And they were there financially and emotionally. So it was it was uh, it was hard initially. I feel like the scales have been pulled from my eyes a bit regarding this industry. Like I just see it as it's 
I mean, podcasting, I, I'm not including in right. like show business, but like pursuing all the other stuff that all the rest of us are kind of always pursuing. And it's like, I don't know. I just, I don't know if, it, if I'm cut out for it in the way that I used to think I was. And I don't know if it's, if that means I'm seeing it clearly or if I'm letting some discouraging experiences, you know, col- like, you know, color my feeling about it. I don't know. How do you, uh, how do you d- deal with this industry? I have found it's pretty much the same ratio as any industry of like assholes to decent people. <laughs> really, it gets a bad rap. And a lot of people say that the business is filled with snakes and, and assholes and users and stuff. And I think, yes, that's absolutely true. But I think those people are also present in the restaurant business sure. and in publishing and in, you know, shoes or working at a mall. I mean, you're going to find there's a percentage of people who are just bad people. I worked at Sam Goody and the manager was <laughs> such a bitch. That's she was a awful. I, I know. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was the same way. I, I spent the vast majority of my 20s in the restaurant business here in Los Angeles because I was an actor. And and I found that there were some great managers and some sleazy managers. And you talk about the Me Too movement. I mean, mm-hmm. women just get treated so horribly in the service industry. And it was, um, I think I've had better experiences with better people in the entertainment business than I have in any other line of work that I've had actual contact with. Yeah. The goods have been so good that it kind of helps me balance out and forgive, not forgive, but um, um, let the, the worst part of it sort of go. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't focus too much on right. that. Right. So you come out to LA with the support of your amazing parents yes. and you're going to pursue acting. And then how did it go from there? I lucked out because I was taking acting classes in Philadelphia my senior year of college at the uh, Walnut Street Theater, great theater in uh, Philly, legit theater. And they were had a great acting class there. And I was in a class with an older gentleman who was just kind of taking it as a lark. And we were working together. And his wife, it turns out, was a local casting director. And they were doing an ABC after-school special. They were shooting on location in Philly, just outside Philly in Delaware. And I don't know if your audience remembers ABC after-school specials. I for sure do. But they were a pretty big deal. You'd come yeah. home from school and ABC once a week would have on some movie of the week, which told stories about kids who were going through difficulties and problems yeah. and stuff. So they were shooting one locally and uh, it was just sheer happenstance. I mean, I've had so much luck, uh, but they were, she was going through headshots saying, I need a, a, a guy who's over 18 to play 18. He's got to play the captain of the high school football team. So he's got to be kind of a big guy, but he's got to be a good actor. And I'm having no luck. And her husband literally said to her, there's a kid in my acting class at Walnut Street who sounds just like that. So she said, would you, I get a call out of the blue. And she says, hi, this is Alina DeSantos. Would you be interested in auditioning for a movie? And it sounded like some scam, you know? <laughs> right. I didn't believe it at all initially. <laughs> just give and us $800. Exactly. Yeah. And we're going <laughs> to we'll get some you pictures. Headshots, yeah. Um, I said, sure, of course, yes. Who wouldn't want to audition for a TV movie? And she said, you have to go to this location and blah, blah, blah. And the director's a, a, a new director named Kevin Hooks, who was an, also an actor who's now a full-time director, but it was his first project. And I read for him during his lunch. They were actually in the midst of shooting. That's why she was in a panic because they were literally right. looking for this role because they were jammed up. And they were shooting already. And he read for me at lunch and he said, yeah, that was great. Um, you'll be, uh, you'll come back tomorrow. We'll start working tomorrow. Oh it was my God. Literally that quick. I got my SAG card and was on the set the next day working. And you must have loved it. It was the 
most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. Which sure. after school special was it? It's called a class act, a teacher's story. <laughs> and it starred Ron Liebman, who I don't know if you know Ron Liebman or not, no. but he's married to Jessica Walters from um, oh, yeah. Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. And uh, anybody else in there you might know of? No, I don't think so. And a bunch of us uh, kids. And I played the captain of the high school football team who had a, a, a gambling problem. Ah. And I was trying to convince another kid to throw this soccer game so I could make some money by gambling on the outcome of the soccer game. And he uh, he's going to throw, he's going to shave the points and, and, uh, and ruin things for his team. But at the last minute, the, the other kid says, no, I'm going to play it fair because I can't let my team down. Mm. So that was the problem. And it was... It was enormously fun. We shot for a couple of weeks on location. I mean, it was everything that I could want. And, and that's when I made the decision, once I had my SAG card. That was always sort of my rule for myself. I had to get a union card first. I wasn't going to leave Philadelphia until I was able to get a union card because I didn't want to be at a severe disadvantage mm-hmm. when I got to California because everybody out here who gets off the bus without a union card is all scrape, scrapping for the same vouchers as a as a extra or trying to get book a commercial to get Taff Hartley in. So I wanted to have that advantage. And once I got that, I made the plan to move to be here by the time the show aired so that I could talk to prospective agents saying, oh, by the way, if you want to see my work, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm on television this week, you know, to pretend like I had made it before. <laughs> I had, you know? And did that work? It did. It got me my agent. And um, my very first agent sent me out of my very first audition which was for a sitcom starring Harry Morgan from MASH, who played Colonel Potter mm-hmm. on MASH. It was called You Can't Take It With You. It was based on an old Broadway Moss Hart play. And I auditioned for his granddaughter's boyfriend, my very first audition, <laughs> and I nailed it and landed it. Wow. And I said, this, this profession is so easy. Why do people <laughs> complain? I just got my union card, my first gig. I had my first audition in Los right. Angeles. I got that part. I said, I'll have my own series by Thursday. <laughs> Did not turn out to be that lucky for the rest of my career. But um, yeah, so there I am. I'm working with, you know, Harry Morgan and uh, and uh, Richard, oh, what was his name? The guy from WKRP in Cincinnati. Played oh. Les Nessman. Richard Sanders was his name. He was also one of the leads in this show. And it just had a blast. And it was the first time I had done uh, a live three camera sitcom format with a live audience. Mm-hmm. And that was that felt like home because it was like theater. You know, you basically go right. up there and you block it and you do it like a play and then they move the cameras around you so you don't have to stop and know your marks and, and re, you know, go for a second take or whatever you perform it mm-hmm. and do pickups afterwards. So that was really fun. I had a blast doing that. And then that was the beginning for me. Really. And I know at some point you were roommates with Adam Carolla. Yes. When did that happen? So I was I was hustling like everybody else and I was working in the restaurant business and I was taking acting classes and I got tired of paying to be in an acting class with other actors and getting up and performing in front of them and they always say you're great and you say they're great and everybody's giving each other hand jobs and it's irrelevant it didn't mean anything I wasn't learning anything really because I wanted to be in front of an audience so I started looking through was it backstage drama log I think back in the I day I had the a drama drama log <laughs> The back of drama log would give you like casting notices yeah. and things. And there was a uh, there was a brand new, a relatively new sketch and improv comedy troupe that was looking for additional members for the troupe. And this group was called the Acme Comedy Theater. And it was a spinoff of some people who had been with the Groundlings, but decided to go off and start their own theater. They weren't crazy about the politics mm-hmm. of the Groundlings. So the guy named um, uh, Mark Sweeney, M.D. Sweeney, started this company. 
and they had had a, they had established crew of one cast, and they were looking to expand and add a second cast. So they had these open call auditions, and I said, "This is what I need." Instead of going to acting class and hearing disingenuous compliments, I'd rather fail in front of a live audience because then maybe I can learn something. And I'd never done sketch, and I'd never done improv before. Had you done comedy? Well, Only, I mean, I guess the Harry Morgan show was comedy, Yeah, right? that was a sitcom. Yeah. But also when I was doing theater, I, mean, I did Barefoot in the Park, mm-hmm. and I'd done Neil Simon, and I had done, you know, Played Against Sam, Woody Allen. So I, I had some comedy chops. Right. Excuse me. And um, so, but I also knew I was quick, and I, I had always done voices mm-hmm. and characters kind of things just to, just to entertain myself right. and my friends. Yeah, well, and you said you were the funny the funny kid. Right. I yeah. was the I was the clown at school. So I said, you know, I could probably write sketches and I can probably improvise. And they were promising that if you if you join the, the company, you would work towards that end as well. You'd learn classes and things like that. So I auditioned for this uh, group and I got in. And that was the beginning of my relationship with Corolla because he was in that already established first group of people. He had been at the Groundlings and then started this theater group with these people. So that's what was my first exposure to Adam was meeting him there. And um, I forget how long I was there when this I was bartending at the time, which could be said about half of my life. <laughs> I was bartending at the time. And the guy who owned the bar was looking for someone to rent his house. Uh-huh. It was really a nice house, much nicer than I could ever really afford um, otherwise. And he was willing to do, give it for a song because he knew me. It was like $1,500 a month, I think. But it was a beautiful, it had a pool and a hot tub and it was ridiculous. A billiard room and a jukebox. It was nuts. It was like, when for I've me, it was like the Playboy the Mansion. stories, I had no idea you guys were sharing a bed in a wonderful house. Uh, we didn't share a bed. <laughs> he shared a bed or a futon with someone. No, he had his own room. Carl okay. had his own room. We all did. Maybe I had the was... biggest room because I found the house. So yeah, I, so I snapped that up. Right. Like on, I, for me, a stressful thing to think about is if I were ever cast on real world, I would have to make sure that I got there first to choose the good room. Yeah, you know, right. I could not be stuck with a shitty room. Um, maybe so it's I, some other time of his life, but I know that there's some time where he was sharing a bed with someone and, and whenever he tells the story i always think why <laughs> it wasn't me no okay. we had our own room okay. literally we had a we had a jukebox full of 45s in the den with a pool table and we had a we had a pool and a hot tub i mean it was it was like i went wow. to the playboy mansion to yeah live. i mean that was the step up for me in terms of this opportunity so anyway he says you can have the place for 1500 bucks and I can't, I can't do 1500 bucks. Yeah. So I said, if I can, there's three bedrooms. If I can find two other guys, we can make this happen. I can do 500 bucks. So I was with a guy named Cortland Cox, who was also in the company mm-hmm. uh, at the theater. Uh, Cortland and I hit it off great. And I said to him. He's a producer now, right? Yeah, he does reality t- television. And I said, Cordy, do you want to in? He's like, yeah, this sounds great. And I said, we just need a third. And as it was so, it just so happened that Adam was having to leave his apartment in Santa Monica for some reason. His roommate was leaving or they were losing the apartment or whatever. So just by sheer coincidence, he became the third. We weren't even that close at the time. Mm-hmm. And then we all moved in together. And uh, that was the beginning of a couple of years of uh, being roommates. Yeah. And then was it through him that you started doing radio stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Adam was uh, hanging drywall and teaching boxing, and I was bartending. And he used to listen to this morning radio show when he worked in construction called The Kevin and Bean Show on K-Rock. And he, he had a, a, I don't know, whatever, whatever what it was that clicked with him, but he had an affinity with their sports guy, a guy named Jimmy Kimmel. He would listen to him, and for some reason, I guess it was 
love at first <laughs> here. But he said, he and I, this guy and I, we have the same sensibility. I think if we ever met, we'd really become pals. So he started calling up the radio station. It's kind of stalkery, but there was a bit they were doing where... <laughs> Her jaws on the floor a little bit. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel was going to box one of the other right. guys on the show. And so Adam called up and volunteered his services to train Jimmy as a way to sort of get to this guy. <laughs> and uh, he... I did not know this element of yes. it. Yes. <laughs> and so he did. And they did hit it off. And... Uh, he was right. He was right. And so they were... So Adam started working on the radio show, doing different characters and... He did in a construction guy mm-hmm. named Mr. Burcham and all these other characters. And um, him and Jimmy hit it off. And then Jimmy came up with the idea for the man show. And so he developed it and then brought Adam in and developed it together. And then they left radio to go do television. But before they left, uh, Kevin and Bean, these guys said, do you know anybody who can step in and kind of do what you guys have done for us? Characters, writing material, uh, that kind of stuff. And Jimmy Kimmel said, yeah, this guy that Adam knows, um, he, I've seen him work and I, he's funny and he does voices and impressions and stuff. He would be a good guy for you guys. So they, uh, Adam and Jimmy said to me, you should go meet with these guys. And I had n- zero interest in doing radio. Mm. I had never heard their show because I was a bartender. I was coming home at, you know, three o'clock right. in the morning and I would sleep till noon. So I'd never heard their show. And I didn't want radio for me. All I could think of was, hey, everybody, it's five minutes past the big hour nine. I'm thinking like you're doing time and temp and intros yeah. and outros for records. That wasn't what I did at all. And they said, no, it's it's a morning show and it's comedy and stuff. And everything. this would be good for you. And I said no a couple of times until <laughs> Jimmy finally said, you're an idiot. You're you know, this could be if nothing else. It's great comedy boot camp because mm-hmm. you have to come up with material every day and it forces you to create even when you're not feeling creative or interested or funny you have to produce he said if that experience alone is worthwhile meet with these guys so i met with them and they weren't interested in me because i had no radio background and i wasn't really interested in them because i didn't want to do radio but they were in a bind and i was getting tired of bartending and i said um they said Tell you what, we don't have anybody else. Can you come in for like three months as just sort of a stopgap measure until we can find a radio professional to do the job? And um, and so three months became eighteen years. Wow! You know, it just never. It just it turned from a part time thing. I mean, initially I was getting paid per bit that I would come up with. They'd pay me per bit, and I'd left my bartending job, so I was like, well, I'm going to come up with something every day because mm-hmm. fifty bucks a bit every day is two hundred fifty bucks a week, and so I started with that, and it was years until they even offered me a contract. Um, but I, I just started. That was that was my that became my work. I just by piecemeal, I just started making a living at doing that. And then eventually, the fans started reacting so strongly to my material that they brought me on full time and gave me a contract. Uh, so you were not excited about doing radio. It's not what you thought you wanted to do. At no. what point did did you have a change of heart? Um, when I started getting the response from the listenership, having that many people in a town like Los Angeles react to some character you've created or some comedy bit that you wrote and to get the feedback via email or people would talk to you at, at live events at the radio, uh, the radio station would do, or it was just the access to an audience of that size and getting and them getting it and enjoying what you did, that for me was an enormous turn on was mm-hmm. that I had access to those people and they they thought the work that I thought 
was good, they thought was good. It was very um, con- uh, reaffirming, I guess, the, that the, the ideas I had that what were funny and what I was doing, that they, they said, yeah, we're on board. So that was the first time I had ever had it on that kind of scale, you know. And um, that, for me, was the turn where I said, I still wasn't crazy about radio per se. Um, the personalities involved and the way the business is run has never been sort of my thing. What is it like? Um, I find them incredibly short-sighted and fearful people on the whole. Mm. A lot of, lot of fear in radio. Uh, I guess maybe because people lose their jobs so quickly and easily in radio. But it's unlike, even when you're successful, everyone is scared. And um, there's a lot of people in radio who don't really know much about entertainment or mm. comedy or performance. They know music because that's their bread and butter. You know, they know um, they know uh, clocks. Everything in radio is built around a clock. You know, at the top of the hour, this has to happen. And then at eight after, this has to happen. And they're, it's like... Oh my God! It's uh, it's like talking about jazz to a metronome. <laughs> That's what those conversations are like. They're so, yeah. and nothing can get off of that beat. Right. And you're trying to play a solo over here in a saxophone, and they're saying, "What are you doing? That's madness. It makes mm-hmm. no sense." Um, and even I always thought, and this is just the sheer ego of of, my, of me of me talking, but. I did a lot of really, in my opinion, good work on that show for a long time. If I had been in any other medium, if, if Kevin B. Show had been a sitcom and I came in as the wacky next door neighbor and crushed it, at some point, any television network would have offered me a spinoff show mm-hmm. or a show of my own. K-Rock went out of their way to make sure I stayed in my place and I was just used to prop up that day part because they were doing very well and the idea of taking me off and moving me in other directions that was squashed immediately even when the conversations were had initially uh, they wanted me to take over on um, love line after adam had left and that that was all killed because they that would mean i would leave the morning show and they there was no way they were going to let that happen so again fear you know Mm -hmm. just don't rock the boat just keep doing things the way you do it and that got frustrating but it was yeah. always the counter was always, man, I'm, I had a great bit this morning. It really crushed and people loved it. And, and having that audience at the ready every morning, five days a week was, a, was just a treat. It was just mm-hmm. so much fun. Do you miss it? I missed access to them. Um, I'm blessed in the sense that, well, that's the worst. Hashtag blessed has ruined the word blessed for me. I can't even <laughs> say it anymore without sounding like a pretentious douchebag. I'm lucky in the sense that. Now with the Ralph Report, my podcast thing, a lot of those people have come with me mm-hmm. and they're still there and they're still listening five days a week and they're still, and I'm more engaged with them now than ever. So in that sense, you know, 18 years of work on that radio show paid off in, in a big way for me because it has provided me with this audience that is still standing by me, mm-hmm. you know, so I still get to to play to them, but it's not. It's not obviously the size, the numbers that you get on uh, terrestrial radio in a big city like Los Angeles. Right. So I do want to know what happened with Kevin and Bean, and I also want to know um, what happened with your friendship with Adam because we had started talking about that a little bit when I was on your show, and yeah. then you're like, "Let's save that for this show." But first, I need to talk to you guys about Loot Crate. 
Are you familiar with Loot Crate? I know Loot Crate very like, well. Of I'm a big nerd, so of course I know about it. A monthly subscription box delivered direct to your door with exclusive pop culture collectibles, apparel, and gear. Loot Crate curates, designs, everything themselves. You can't find these items anywhere. No matter what you geek out about, this is for you. My most recent Loot Crate box had an Office Space t-shirt, which I love. It had a Rick and Morty figurine. It had a pop socket, which my husband stole. And it's, <laughs> it's currently on his phone, and it's changed the way he uses his phone. Uh, it had so much cool stuff. Um, Loot Crate packs $50 of value into each crate for less than $20 a month. You can't lose. Subscribe now and give yourself a birthday present every month. Uh, the October Crate has four incredible franchises, including Attack on Titan, American Horror Story, Gremlins, and Evil Dead 2. This crate will sell out. You must order by this week to guarantee yours as this will sell out. Get the best surprises each month from the largest geek and gaming subscription company. Geek out in style with Loot Crate. Subscribe now by going to lootcrate.com slash Rosen and enter my code Rosen to save an exclusive 15% off your subscription. So again, subscribe now by going to lootcrate.com slash Rosen and enter my code Rosen to save an exclusive 15% off your subscription. Okay. Ralph Garman, yes. the dark period. Mm. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, so, yeah. So what happened? Nothing lasts forever, kids. Remember that. <laughs> Although you think it, it will sometimes. I was, in retrospect, when I look back, I think, what did I think was going to happen? Of course, the, the, it was all going to come to an end. I guess I thought it would end differently, I mm. guess, was what I thought. Um, the Kevin and Bean Show was a wildly successful morning show for many years. It was number one for a couple of years there. We were at the top of the world. And um, then last year in November, I uh, my contract was up in November, and I kept early months earlier. I remember my management and myself going to uh, the powers that be at K Rock, saying, "I don't think we've ever waited this long to negotiate the next deal yet. It's really, it's really cutting a little close, don't you think?" And the bitch of it was, I was reassured every step of the way. We're absolutely going to re-sign. Mm. You know, the numbers aren't what they used to be in terms of the ratings. This, the, con- the, the company's not making the money it used to. Um, the station's not billing what it used to. So there may have to be an adjustment to everybody's salary, but we, we have no plans of breaking up the band. And I was like, I get that. I understand. I'm not an unreasonable person. I wouldn't want them to lose money on me because I, I think I have value. But if the company is not, you know, if the advertising rates are lower or whatever, I certainly understand the economics of of radio fine but i was i was reassured at every step of the way um that it was going to happen the question of why it was taking so long was answered with well um les moonves may he rot in hell um has decided to sell off all the cbs radio stations and so they're selling it off to this company called intercom and until that sale is complete, we're not sure who's doing the renegotiations yet or what the numbers are. That's got to be that's got to settle first before we can start going about business as usual. And that, too, made sense to me because I said, oh, sure, it's a big change. I get it. So uh, two weeks before my deal is up, I get called in, in uh, to an office and I got sat down and they said, yeah, we're not going to uh, move forward with having you here mm-hmm. any longer. You're, you know, your services are no longer necessary. And I was like, wow, that, uh, that's a kick in the pants. And they said, yeah, but we want you to, you know, want you to know how much um, you, you mean to us here. And when they start <laughs> talking about family and stuff, you just want to throw up because right. it's just 
It's the exact opposite of family. It's business. And I know that. And please don't treat me like an idiot and pretend like it's anything else. Yeah. You know, I have the decency to treat it like a business transaction. But we're family. And what we'd like to do is instead of um, having you end your career with us in two weeks, we'd like to just pay you for another couple of months. And then, and then after the new year, have a big farewell party for you and a thank you party for everything you've done for the station. And I said, hold on, you want to give me a retirement party when I'm not retiring and I'm being forced out the door? I've never known anyone to have a your fired party. They yeah. don't have that. And I said, this two months, is this a severance or is this just, is this the only way I can make uh, any money? And they're like, well, no, it's severance. So you don't have to work it. So I said, good then. I said, I'll be done at the end of November. And they said, well, it seems like, you know, you're upset. And I was like, well, yeah, I am upset. Wait, what does that, what does that mean? Is it that you wondered if it was the only way you could make any money? What were you thinking they might be doing? If I didn't keep working past the end of my contract for the next two months and deliver them their their I Love K-Rock party, if they, you know, they wanted me to wave the banner of the station on the way yeah, out. Yeah, they cared about appearances. Right, for appearance sake. So they wouldn't catch any shit for letting me go. Uh, so I was asking them, if I don't, if I opt out of that little scenario, do I still get the two months that you're putting on the table as severance in essence? I see, I see. Or is it like conditional, is it conditional on right. you uh, kissing the ring? Right. And they said, well, no, it's not conditional. You would get two, two months severance, which, by the way, two months severance after 18, 18 years. 18 years, yeah. That seemed like a, just a shot in the shorts to me mm-hmm. as well. But they, they in, in the conversations after the fact, they informed me very uh, forcefully that they didn't even have to give me that. I was lucky that I got that. Who's the they, if you don't mind saying? Um, you don't have to if you don't want. I'm trying to think exactly who, I mean, um, there was a guy in New York, I'm, t- I'm blanking on his name, quite frankly, so I don't want to say the wrong, okay. the wrong name, Chris, Chris Oliveri was his name, mm-hmm. and uh, he told my guy, you know, it's, he's lucky, we don't have to give him anything, he's a contracted employee, he's not, there's nothing in his contract that says anything about a severance or anything, so he's lucky that he got the two months, <laughs> and um, that came down the down the road, but at this time it's like, no, we'll give you the two months. And I said, okay, great. Then I'm done in, in at the end of my contract. Mm. I don't want to. I don't want to go on for two months knowing in the back of my mind that this is the end and not be able to address that fact because that was very uh, important on their list too. Is like we're not going to talk about it until the end, and then we'll have a big send off for right. you. Yeah. I don't want to dead man walking for two months. That's yeah. no fun. I said, no, I'll be done when my contract is up. And I said, I ask for nothing other than you give me on the final day a chance to say goodbye to the audience. And they said, that seems fair. You can do that, which never happens in radio. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to give the the people the mic on their last day. Usually they don't tell you it's your last day until it's after your last day. Right, they escort you out. So they said I could do that. And uh, And then that was it. And on the day, it was funny. Well, it wasn't quite it because... I said to them in that room in that first meeting, I said, I feel bad now. I have to go break the news to everybody and Kevin and Bean. They're like looking at each other. I said, <laughs> oh, of course. How foolish of me. Kevin and Bean have known about this for a while, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, they know. And mm-hmm. um, that that gave me a bad taste in my mouth, too, because, you know, those both of those guys had claimed to be a good friend of mine for right. a number of years. And I understand that probably they were dictated to and saying, well, don't tell him anything until we can. That wouldn't have stopped me. Right. I, w- I would have gotten word to them so they didn't walk into a buzzsaw, you know? Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, all the uh, all the delaying tactics that they had given you and your people regarding why they weren't um, renegotiating your contract, do you think those were all bullshit? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So how long do you think this had been in the works? Um, I think 
early in negotiations for Entercom to buy these stations, Entercom looked at the numbers for these stations mm-hmm. and started saying, well, the value of this station, it, what you're spending to keep this station on the air is way outstripping its value. So you're going to have to bring those numbers down in, for, in order, or, or you're, you're going to have to match this number we give you in order to close right. the deal on the sale. And I think they were starting to figure out early on, all right, who's, whose head's going to roll? What salaries do we cut in order to reach that number? Right. I think that was happening early on. That's like a, such a common corporate thing that happens. Very like much we so, We just yes. feed off the uh, willingness of young, eager people who will work for not very much. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, I mean, Kevin and Bean is still on the air, but I imagine whenever that is done that they will give those guys the boot as well, and then they'll bring in some baby show that costs nothing, and then they'll try to grow that from the ground up mm-hmm. and try to get numbers because – Right now, the, the the Woody Show and then across the street at another station is just kicking ass in the morning. So, I uh, I I can't imagine they would still spend the kind of money they have to spend on the Kevin and Bean Show yeah. to lose. They could lose for nothing, you know. <laughs> they can lose expensively or they can lose cheaply. Right. So I don't I don't know I don't know how that's going to work out. But it, it was awkward. And then uh, and I walked into that room afterwards, and it was Bean who doesn't live in Los mm-hmm. Angeles does a show in another from another state. He was on the conference call box there and everyone else was in the room and i said before we start planning tomorrow's show i just want everyone to know this is the meeting i just walked out of and i want everyone to know that i'm uh, i won't be here any longer and bean was on the speaker box and he said to me oh i'm so sorry to hear that and i was like oh man <laughs> you, you don't get to play the i'm sorry to hear right. that card because you knew it before i did and there was a there was dead silence and he said well i'm still sorry and i was like okay um so they, that was there was it was bad. It was a bad ending. Did you have any conversations with them after? Um, I tried. A lot of it was like, well, I don't know. It just, you know, it's just that we were kind of told that's what happened. I got the sense that no one really put up a fight for me, which really surprised mm-hmm. me because I had done really good work for that show and that station and those guys for a really long time. And I thought that goes back to my thing about fear. The new bosses were coming in and everybody was uh, was avoiding eye contact and had their tail between their legs and just like, dear God, don't let it be me next kind of thing. Right. You know? So no one stood up and said, you know, if you if you get rid of this guy, you're going to gut the source of a lot of the content that made, makes this show work. Um, maybe we can make a deal with this guy. Maybe we can offer him a different uh, pace structure or something. Maybe there's a way we can salvage it. I don't think anyone stepped up and even presented that idea. They just heard, oh, this is what you want? Yes, sir. And it came down to Kevin and Bean and Kevin Weatherly, who runs the station. I don't think anybody involved um, took up a sword for me. And I guess, you know, why should I expect it? It's it's their, you know, they're not responsible for my livelihood and, and um, you know, they're not responsible for protecting me. But for a long time at K-Rock, as I said, there was a lot of talk about the K-Rock family and how we're all in this together and blah, blah, blah. And it all, it all turns out to be bullshit at the end. Yeah, that is super disappointing. Yeah. So uh, I worked for two weeks, again, dead man walking, know what was happening. And then on my last day, I got a call the night before my last day from management saying, um, it was from Kevin Weatherly, the station manager. He said, you know, uh, I, I probably should not have agreed to what I did about you talking about uh, leaving the show. He said, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting pushback from the higher ups about you t- addressing it at all. And I was like, that's really shitty. And, uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to hold you to what you said. And he goes, okay, but you can't say why you're leaving. 
You can say it's your last day, but you can't say why it's your last day. Again, them protecting themselves right. in appearances and not wanting to deal with the fallout of people who would be upset if I was no longer on the show. So I, uh, I, I did once an hour. I talked to my audience and I thanked them for everything. And I told them I was leaving and I never said why I was leaving. And so throughout that morning on social media, there started to be this is where, you know, we're at the height of the, the crest of the Me Too movement mm. at this point, where people are immediately starting oh, to speculate, no. am I leaving because there was some sexual harassment charge right. brought up again? And people were jumping to that conclusion oh, left wow. and right on social media, and I was not able to address it one way or the other. You couldn't even say it's not that? Well, uh, we did later on in the morning, once it became obvious that that was an <laughs> idea a lot of people were jumping oh, to. But my friend Kevin Smith, God love him, I'll always appreciate what he did. He, you know, he's got... 3 million followers on Twitter. He jumped on Twitter and said, this is what's happening this morning over on K-Rock. My friend Ralph Garman is given the boot and they won't let him say why. And I want you to know it's purely because they want to save money and they're just, they're tossing him aside. And he was very angry on my behalf and very um, upfront about what was happening. And he put out that tweet that morning and a lot of people got their information from him from that tweet. That so is nice. It was nice of him to set the record straight. Because he was starting to see it too, and, and yeah. said that's not right. So, how did you and Kevin? Sorry, go, no, go ahead. How did you and Kevin Smith become friends? From the show. I mean, so many good things have come out of came out of K Rock and that morning show that it's hard for me to feel anything but lucky that I ever did it. You know, um, so much work, you know, on television and film. I mean, uh, and then my friendship with Kevin Smith being paramount among them. He started just showing up on the show to promote whatever his next movie was or whatever, and invariably it was it was a bromance every time he would show up we would start riffing together and go outside as we had both smokers at the time we'd go out and have a cigarette and we'd talk comic books and movies and we just really hit it off and i had a recurring segment on the morning show called the showbiz beat where once an hour i would break down all the entertainment news and i would take the piss out of people and it was sort of like a, a you know it was an anti-access hollywood one of those kinds of things so whenever Kevin was in on the show to promote stuff, I would always have him sit in with me on that because we would riff back and forth and make each other laugh. And it was always a good time. So we became friends that way. And then a couple of years down the road, we decided we wanted to work together. And that's where the idea for the Hollywood Babylon thing came from. OK, so your friendship with Adam. I know that we had started talking about it. Yes. A little bit. Um, and... Then, yeah, I was asking you questions on your show. I already, I'm, now I'm just repeating myself. And you said, <laughs> let's save it for this show. Yeah, because it was about you. My interview with you was about you. So I didn't want to waste our time talking about me. Well, that's, by the way, you're a very good interviewer. Oh, you complimented me on my interviewing, but I was thinking, because I've been interviewed by, you know, a, a fair number of people, and um, I, you're really, really good. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Where do you feel like you learned that? Um, well, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, I have been talking into a microphone for a long time. So you take those skills and then if you apply it to sort of a natural curiosity, I think it's a good combination. Mm -hmm. That's all. I think I'm genuinely interested in people, especially creative people. And um, I think if you just listen to people, your next question will sort of happen. You know, I don't, never had to struggle really too much to think about what to ask someone because right. I think people are interesting. We're the same, Ralph. A couple of formerly fat, curious people <laughs> who talk into mics. That's right. Uh, so, yeah. So what happened with Adam? Well, it's, you know, people always know the backstory in the sense that we were roommates. And that, that's sort of like a, a 
forced relationship when you're living with someone. You know, would we have been really close friends outside of those circumstances? I don't know. Because even when we were living together, Adam would stay primarily in his room. Um, Cortland and I were very sort of similar in our sensibilities where we'd like to throw parties and we would have people over and there'd be nudity on the water slide and it would be a little bit <laughs> you had a water slide we had too? a water slide wow. too yeah oh um God. there was there was we called it shea nude after a while because every <laughs> at some point at every party everyone would end up naked it was it was really a lot of fun a lot of uh, childish antics and adam was just not down with that and um you know i was seeing a lot of women at the time because i was a bartender and i was living that life and adam had one girlfriend and he spent a lot of time with her at her place and stuff so we were never sort of the same kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. did you get the sense that he was an introvert or just not yeah kind of like an introvert mm -hmm. um so although we lived together we it wasn't like we did everything together we weren't hanging out all the time uh, we'd see each other obviously um but when the when the when the move out and happened, when the that house situation came to an end, I started seeing him less and less, and um, it just seemed like um, I don't know. We were different people, and sometimes you can hold on to relationships. I think for old times' sake, or because it seems like that's the way it's supposed to be. When in reality. Maybe you're not supposed to be friends with everybody forever. Mm -hmm. I knew Adam v very well a long time ago, but the, the, the relationship didn't seem to continue on to keep that status going. And then there were a few personal uh, interactions we had where um, it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way and, and made me feel bad. And I kind of got to a point, and I think this comes with age. It certainly did with me. But I got to the point where I said, you know what? This doesn't make me feel good anymore, this uh, situation. And so I'm just going to back away. It was never any sort of big blowout. We never had a big argument or whatever. I don't think Adam's that kind of guy anyway. I think mm -hmm. he's very sort of, um, he feels stuff on the inside. Sometimes you don't get to see the uh, what he's thinking or feeling. And and it was just, it just kind of faded away. But it was, um, yeah, there were a few things that I, I really would rather not get into in terms of uh, there were kind of personal things, interactions that mm -hmm. weren't, again, not blow ups, not arguments, but just made me feel shitty. And I said, I don't want to feel shitty anymore. So I'm not going to deal with with his particular brand of friendship anymore because he can be. And again, I don't think Adam's a bad guy. I don't think there's any malice in his behavior, but I find him to be uh, narcissistic sometimes to the point where. I did see him recently, maybe last year, at a birthday party for a mutual friend. And I hadn't talked to him in years. And he came up to me and he said, Hey, did you see the uh, Steve McQueen watch sold for over a million dollars? It was the first thing out of his mouth after not talking. And it's we're both aware that we're not really friendly right. anymore. You see the Steve McQueen watch sold for over a million dollars? I was like, yeah, I saw that in the news. He said, you know, I have a lot of Steve McQueen stuff. So I, I think that's my... Uh, my uh, uh, insurance policy right there is all my Steve, Steve McQueen uh, memorabilia. And I was like, I looked at my wife. I was like, what? I don't even understand how this conversation is happening. And he's talked to him some more about his himself and then walked away. And I was like, that was the weirdest thing ever, man. That was so bizarre. It wasn't like, hey, what's up? How you been? Yeah. It was just, it's like we had started in the middle of a conversation about him that we had stopped having at some other point and he was just picking it up where it left off. Right. So, um, again, uh, and I hope it comes through on all these conversations I'm having about K-Rock and Kevin and Bean and Adam Carolla that there's really no 
anger or uh, resentment against these guys. It's just sometimes, you know, people aren't what the what you would like them to be, and situations or relationships aren't what you'd like them to be, and either you can rage on about that and focus on that or you just let it go and move move on you know mm-hmm. I, i'm hope i'm trying to be a move on guy these days well i was gonna say have you always been a move on guy? no i i for a lot of my life i've been a uh, uh a, a guy who uses resentment as sort of fuel and mm-hmm. anger as fuel and i would carry a lot of grudges and um I did that for the better part of my young adult life. And it's just and no good ever really comes from it, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes anger can be a great motivator sometimes. And so can I'll show them. Right. Um, but I don't, my perspective now is just different. I just don't. I, I find other reasons to motivate me now. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a wife and you've got a kid and you've got friends that you like to work with and you've got work that you're doing that you're proud of, it, you're better off using those things to motivate you than the fact that you're angry at something some guy said 10 years ago. You know? I had an exchange with a horrible woman uh, like a week and a half ago, and I couldn't, like, just this, this is a entitled narcissistic bully of a woman who was like so out of line that I was just kind of like, did sort of like what you're talking about a little bit, but, but it was more aggressive of like, did that, it was another mom. It was like, did that really happen? And like, I could not shake it off. But I think it's because that kind of stuff doesn't happen in my life very often anymore. Right, like right. as an adult, you sort of do choose who you, who you deal with. So you don't deal with hopefully like a lot of unpleasantness in right. one dose. No, of course. And but, listen, I don't want to give the impression that I'm the fucking Dalai Lama here. You know, I don't sit, you know, lotus position, <laughs> just letting the world's troubles fall off my back. I mean, the K-Rock thing shook my world to its foundation. You know, when you're doing something for 18 years and it's your source of income and it's your source of identity to a certain extent, and that happens in the span of a, of a conversation, everything is turned upside down. Just before the holidays and you're, you're buying toys for your kid for Christmas thinking, all right, what's my bu- toy budget now? Mm-hmm. It's very different than what it was two weeks ago. Um, and then starting a new business and having to find a new way to earn to provide for my family and and dealing with the the learning curve there and I mean it's been a tumultuous nine months ten months and there were pl- plenty of times where I was genuinely angry and really resentful and I'm just I still I lean that way still to this day I'm just trying to control myself now and trying to to, to recognize it and then pick a different direction. Do you? Well, this is the least funny interview I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I had so much funnier. I apologize. <laughs> no, it. I think people like to hear real stuff. I hope so. Do you go to therapy or do meditation? Or I did. I did. Um, after my son passed away, my daughter's eight years old, my Olivia, and she had a twin brother named Lincoln, and uh, he passed away ten days after they were born. They were twins, uh, premature twins. How early were they born? Uh, or how premature were they? What's the norm? 40 weeks. 40 weeks. They were 32, mm. 31. Very little. Very little. Very tiny babies. And uh, Lincoln's death, you know, that also kind of shit puts things in perspective for you. Um, Lincoln's death, well, obviously, it, it changes you yeah. forever. And it, and it destroys a big part of who you are, and you never get that back. So... Either you walk around damaged forever or you try to do some work to make, to create a new norm for yourself so that you're not bleeding out all the time, you know? And so I went through therapy there and 
that was more dealing with grief more so than just the general behavior and how I act and stuff. But uh, it all feeds into each other. You know, you can't start to examine yourself without start seeing all the all the pieces of the puzzle at some point. Right. It depends on what you focus on in terms of therapy. But um, any self-awareness, I think, is good. Any any look at your at yourself and your life is good. How much a part of your life is that grief now? Less and less. Birthdays are hard. You know, there are certain moments that are hard. Um, but she's such a joy and she's such a great kid that really it, you, uh, you focus on the good again. You know, it's like you, it's, life is all choices, man. You just, you, uh, you really genuinely can create anything you want out of it depending on what you focus on. And I just love her to death, and I just I just choose to celebrate her life. You know. Can I ask what happened with your son? Yeah, he developed something called NEC, N-E-C, which is a uh, still a mysterious ailment that befalls primarily uh, premature babies. It is uh, the official official uh, title. The reason they abbreviate it is because no one can ever pronounce <laughs> it. But it's uh, necrotizing enterochlorosis. Colitis. I don't know. Look it up, people. NEC, <laughs> um, and it's it's basically an infection uh, uh, leading to a perforation mm. of the uh, intestines, the bowels, and it causes uh, sepsis and poisoning of the of the blood. And it it's a hideous, hideous disease that really no one is doing a shit about except for the March of Dimes. I always give them a shout out when I chance because they're one of the few charities that focus on preemies and focus on this particular disease. It's very difficult to treat. They try with antibiotics. Sometimes they catch it and it's fine. Sometimes they catch it and your kid's already um, lose, having, having organ failure and it leads to operations and transplants down the line if they survive. And then sometimes in Lincoln's case, uh, by the time they diagnosed it to his passing was 24 hours. <sighs> So it's brutal. It's a brutal thing to go through to lose a child. Yeah. And then that happened. And I still, no, go ahead. eight years later, I still cry. Still beat it. And that happened while Olivia was in the NICU for a couple more months, Yes, right? and she was the uh, small sickly one. So you can imagine when you lose your child after 10 days and they tell you that was the strong one. He was the, he was the one we had best hope for, you know? So then were you worried all the time about her? You live in constant fear. Every time the phone rings, you think it's the end. And uh, you spend inordinate, inordinate amounts of time in the NICU. And uh, it's a strain in your relationship and your belief system. And uh, yeah, it's brutal. brutal. How do you not... Let me, figure, let me figure out a better way to phrase this. Um, I am str- I'm, I'm a like anxious person. And with my son... I'm struggling. I can already see my temptation to be overprotective and uh-huh. shelter him from things that frighten me. Yes. Um, how do you deal with that? Make a conscious decision not to do that. That's all you can do. Because, of course, a, a regular parent in a regular situation with a normal birth, your instinct is to wrap the kid in bubble wrap and make sure nothing bad ever happens to them on any level. Yeah. And uh, when you have a preemie, it's double that, or double, 10 times that. So you just have to make a conscious decision. You have to catch yourself and, and monitor yourself and say, nope, that is just fucking unacceptable. I'm going to let them forget their homework today and get in trouble at school because she has to learn to pack her backpack before she goes to third grade. I mean, you just you have to hold yourself back from doing from them for their own good. And at the same time, reinforce 
that how much you love them and give them everything they need every day. So it's a balancing act. Every day is a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's take some questions that listeners sent in on Patreon. I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. Different reward levels, all sorts of fun stuff. Also, Ralph Garman's The Ralph Report on Patreon. Indeed. But you put out a show every day. Monday through Friday. That's right. Uh, and where do they go to find that? Uh, Patreon.com slash The Ralph Report. Or you can go to the Ralph Report. Dot com to get uh, information and merch and all that kind of good stuff. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. All right. So here are some questions that people sent in on Patreon. Rigo says, when did you know you were going to head west and pursue a career in Hollywood? I think we talked about that one. Yeah, pretty but, early on. And what would you give to get that Star Wars poster back that your father gave you? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I, um, my dad, as I mentioned, would bring home posters all the time. And not just Paramount films because he worked for Paramount. But he would swing by National Screen. And National Screen Services, for those who don't know, is, I don't know if they still do it or not, but they were sort of the clearinghouse for all publicity materials for movies. So when a theater got its posters delivered to them, it came from National Screen. And my father used to work for National Screen as well back in the day. So he would swing by and he'd say, what do you got? And they would hand him a bunch of posters. And sometimes he'd bring me home something the Paramount had. And sometimes he'd bring me home Superman from Warner Brothers or or in this particular case, what Rigo is referring to is that I got an advanced poster for the third Star Wars movie, which at the time was called Revenge of the Jedi. Uh-huh. And the one sheet said Revenge of the Jedi. They, ch- they changed the name of that movie to Return of the Jedi later on. Right. So those early revenge uh, teaser posters are, are pretty valuable. And I had one and I, I sold it off because I needed cash at one point. How much know. did you get for it? I think I got like 150 bucks for it. How much could you get for it now, do you uh, think? Probably a couple thousand, I assume. I, so I was a stringer for Rolling Stone, uh, and they, I went to, for the random notes section of Rolling Stone. So I went to all these cool events and interviewed all these cool people, and Kiss was doing some event at Man's Chinese Theater for the Psycho Circus album, which I don't, I doubt is very highly regarded. But still, I had this whole Kiss press kit with it had like a hologram and all this wow. new stuff. And... It was like for press first, and then I, there was like just the public was lined up, and I don't know what they were going to come in for. But anyway, on my way out, someone in in the line of just public people waiting to get in was like, "Do you want that?" And I'm like, "Oh, you can have it." And I just handed it over. And I always think about that. Like, I bet I mean I don't know how much that could have fetched, but Go, definitely don't look more. on eBay. You'll kick yourself in the ass. Yeah, there was so many. There were so many things like that that I would just give away. Because I'm a good, nice person. Exactly. <laughs> but now the Kiss has announced their uh, their ninth uh, farewell tour. Oh, is it for you, real this time? <laughs> you could have made a couple bucks. <clears throat> okay. Todd Campbell says, I loved the first season of Joe Schmo, uh, as yes. did I. Was the reveal at the end of the season as emotional in person as it was edited for production? Also, what was your favorite competition during that season? Mm. Uh, it was more emotional than it looked on television, only because we were all so invested in Matt's well-being and we're so fearful about what he was going, how he was going to react when he finally found out that we were all just sh- shaken really to our core. The production staff, uh, Rhett and Paul, who created the show, 
me out there in front of the cameras. But the problem was, and all the players as well, all the actors, uh, but we also had a show to do, you know, so you can't fall apart and you can't be as emotional yeah. as you want to be and you can't tear up and you can't, uh, you know, try to protect his feelings. You've got to deliver the goods. You got, you've been working for so long leading up to this moment. It's got to pay off. So we we're actually going through more emotional turmoil than you actually got to see on the show. But for it was anyone who's emotional. unfamiliar, this was a reality show uh, where the star of the show thought it was a real reality show, right. but everyone else was actors playing characters. And yes. Kristen Wiig was on it. It was her first big project. Yeah. Her first big role was Doctor. on that show. Dr. Pat. That's right. Um, and uh, Dave Hornsby from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Lance Crawl and a bunch of good people. Uh, were you surprised at the, at the emotion that you felt? Yes. No one getting it. It was all shits and giggles leading into the production. We're like, this is going to be great. This sucker, we're going to pull the wool over his eyes. And then <laughs> you fall in love with this person. And and I felt worse for the actors because they were living in the house with him. It was a very right. big brother style show. And so they'd get up in the morning and have breakfast with this guy and have lunch and go to bed and say goodnight. They became so close to him and and woven into his life that by the end, they were genuinely rattled by uh, what was what we were doing to this guy, which was yeah. a big con, basically. So, um, yeah, it was very it turned out very differently than what we expected going in. In fact, we found ourselves sort of softening up some of the stuff as we were in production because it just felt too mean sometimes mm-hmm. at moments, you know. And so uh, but my favorite competition was uh, there was a bit where you had to get honey dumped all over you and then roll around <laughs> and pick up uh, cash in this sort of wading pool. And for that segment, they dressed me up in a giant bee costume. <laughs> I and, forgot about that. And I my character, that. who was sort of a, uh, a smarmy, smarmy host. host, wannabe actor who was slumming by being a host of a game show, basically, I went on this tirade about how embarrassing it was to be dressed up as a bee supposedly off camera like no one Uh uh, we did it for camera but matt thought it was just a conversation we were having and so i got to complain about the uh, the bee suit and it was very funny so did he like talk you down he did he said ralph you know this could be great for your career you don't know and he said one of his famous quotes was uh wear the bee suit don't let the bee suit wear you (laughs) Oh, God, I loved that show. I was trying to remember during the elimination ceremony when you'd eliminate someone. Do you? It was like ashes to ashes, dust, dust to dust. dust. You were dead You're to dead us? You're dead to us, okay. yeah. And I would take their uh, plate. collector's plate that had their face on it. And I would throw it and smash it in the fireplace. And then the second season, which I also loved, was a dating show. Right, it was with- a spoof of, first show was a spoof of Survivor and Big Brother. Second show was a spoof of Bachelor and Bachelorette. And there were there was a Joe, a lady Joe Schmo and a male Joe Schmo. Right. But the lady figured it out, so they had to replace her. Was she figured it out like some episodes in? Yes, or early very on. early on. She got yeah. she, she figured out what was up. What was? Do you remember? The- and we didn't get rid of her. We brought her over to right. the dark side. We made her. We we told her everything was going on, and we had her be an actor to right. play along with everyone else. I remember yeah. Natasha Leggero. Yep, played the drunk. Yeah. Um. What was the name of the fake show on the second one? Because it wasn't it riches to rags on the first one. No, it was the lap of luxury. Was the oh, yeah. first, was the show yeah. of the first one, and the second one was uh, last chance for love. Oh yeah, I think last chance for love. I think so. Was there a th- last chance for love? Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. Was there a third season? There was just recently, uh, a couple years ago. We we brought it back. First season was a great hit for Spike TV. Their first really hit on that new cable channel. 
We did another one the next year immediately because they wanted to reproduce that phenomenon. It didn't happen. Ratings were not good for the second mm, one. So I they like just it. let it go. Ten years later, which was a couple years ago, they brought us back for a third go round where my character this time was a bounty hunter and it was a competition reality show to see who was going to be the next great bounty hunter working <laughs> with me tracking down criminals. And if you liked the first one especially, you owe it to yourself to find the third season of Joe Schmo because Chase, who is the, 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 the Schmo in the show, is just as charming and just as great as Matt was. And it really, really funny. funny and it's show. Rhett and Paul again? Rhett and, well, they had moved on at that point. They were doing uh, Deadpool movies mm-hmm. and Zombieland. But we had their blessing and everyone involved with the writing staff from the previous ones came back. And, and uh, John Holland Moore, who was a writer on the first two, became our producer on this one i don't know how i missed this you it gotta was on see spike. It. it's really good Do it was know, on spike yeah is it i believe it's available on dvd or at least uh, you can okay. get it at, uh, on hulu or s- streaming someplace right but we added a, a celebrity element uh, lorenzo lamas played himself <laughs> on the show He's, he was going to make a change in careers from being an actor he wanted to be a a, a um a bounty hunter and my character is very much based on dog the bounty hunter and it was, uh, I never wore sleeves. I said, that's my only condition. When if I take this role, you must cut the sleeves off of everything you put on. <laughs> and at the end of the big farewell ceremony, I'm wearing a suit jacket with no sleeves. Uh, so I had bare arms. It was very funny. Did you ever worry that you would break? Uh, yes. Especially in the second season, because I was working with a, uh, an, a Canadian comedian and actor named Jonathan Torrance, who... For whatever reason, some people can just do this to you. He made me laugh harder than anyone else I had worked with on that show. And I would I was laughing a lot on all those shows. But for some reason, he just tickled me. And I it was the only time I really had to like turn away sometimes because I started to go up. <laughs> it was very, very rarely. But when it did happen, it was largely his fault. But I, I mean, like break, like reveal. Oh, sure. So that Matt sure. would. Yeah. What I, mean, I remember from the first season is that oftentimes in the like sort of one-on-one interviews the actors would would be concerned that they had like oh i i like they were revealed something to him because they had forgotten something or messed something up but yes. i remember in watching it thinking that it it would be a far cry for matt to have heard that little inconsistency and therefore jump to this whole thing as fake um Yes, but you don't know it at the time because you're super concerned. I mean, you have to realize all the money and time that's going into right. this thing. It's a house of cards. And if one thing goes yeah. wrong and it collapses, you've got weeks of production to go down the drain. And so everyone is super aware of everything that comes out of their mouth. And they're always thinking back over every conversation, combing through it, saying, did I say something? Yeah. In the third season, we had a girl who was competing to be a bounty hunter, <laughs> but she was supposed to be hard of hearing. She was supposed to be deaf. Now she wasn't. She was a hearing actress. And she signed everything with an interpreter that she had with her. And at one point, uh, Chase, who was our schmo, was, had his face turned away from her and said something. And she responded to it. <laughs> and that was the, <gasps> one of those moments in the production office where everyone's were watching live right. on the monitors. We all took a gasp. And he was like, did you, did you just hear me? And she was like, what? <laughs> And she just played it off, but it was it was sheer panic, one of those sheer right. panic moments. There oh, was plenty wow. of those in the show. Yeah. Wow. Um, Abel Goddard says, what's your favorite voice out of the eight you have? <laughs> <laughs> it's a running joke on my Hollywood Babylon show with Kevin Smith that I only do eight impressions. And I, <laughs> I'm sure it's at least nine. Um, my favorite one, just for sheer energy and joy, is uh, Schwarzenegger. 
I love doing that one. Because whenever you do Arnold, everything is upbeat, you know. It's so, it's so positive about everything, and, you know, and it's no magic pill, okay. You have to work hard every day, every day, you know, whether you want to build muscles or you want to build your mind. Anything is possible. Just look at me with my name and my voice. I became a huge movie star. <laughs> so I just like doing Arnold. Is there anyone that you've really wanted to do that you just can't? Like just can't nail For it? For years, I could not come up with an Obama. Yeah, I had done, uh, I did Clinton, I had done Bush, and I just could not nail it. And, you know, if you're doing radio every morning, it comes in handy to be able to do the president of the United States right. because you can, you can build a lot of bits around that. I never could do him. I know he always talked very fast. And I always knew that, you know, if you're talking about Obama, you have to, you know, give him a certain amount of uh, almost professorial thing. He's, he talks like a, a teacher almost. But I was fine. I would always sort of slip into my Bill Clinton, and eventually <laughs> I could never hold on to it because the cadence was was so similar. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, that was always frustrating for me. Whitney C says, "Who was your role model as a kid?" Wow. Well, it depends on what stage of my life you're you're talking about. As as a little kid, I was obsessed with, and to this day remain obsessed with, Batman. TV's Batman, Adam West, who later became a real life role model and friend uh, in terms of how he conducted himself and his career and his, his family. And he was a great friend and husband and dad. And uh, I miss him dearly. Um, so that was a big role model, but also for me, James Garner, I don't know if anyone remembers the Rockford files or uh, any of his film work, but he was a guy who was never like number one at the box office, but he worked all the time for decades and I always thought he was so natural and comfortable in front of the camera that that's what I always aspired to, to be an actor that no one ever sort of caught acting. It mm -hmm. looked like he was saying things for the first time ever, that every time they came out of his mouth. I always thought that he was great. All right. Now let's do a segment called Just Me or Everyone. This is where people write in with things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? Okay. And then we say whether we also do these things. Great. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Paul says, I never use the safety tether on a treadmill and have never seen anyone else use it either. I've never seen anyone use that either. He's I, absolutely right. My parents had a treadmill and... Uh, when I first started using it, I would attach it to myself sometimes, but then occasionally I would like pull it off the machine and then the machine would stop and the whole thing seemed worse than if I just wasn't doing it. Yeah, I would think so. I, especially if you're going a pretty good clip. I think yeah. if it starts, if it stops suddenly, you're in trouble. Yeah. Plus who can't, who can't negotiate a treadmill? How treacherous <laughs> is even that dogs piece? can do it. Exactly. How treacherous <laughs> is that piece of equipment? Uh, Jen Aquesta says, why is it when someone messes with your belly button, it tickles in the back of your throat? I think that might be it just you. I've never experienced. Well, first of all, thankfully, I don't live in a, in a, I don't live a lifestyle where there's a lot of belly button messing. <laughs> <laughs> I have a phobia actually about my belly button. No one's really? allowed to get near it. What's the phobia? My wife consistently, it's just someone sticking their finger in my belly okay, button. Yeah. It's just unacceptable to mm -hmm. me. That's not allowed. And she tortures me. She'll try to catch me unawares and get her finger in there. But So I would never know if that's the case or not because I've never let anyone that right. kind of access. I do feel like in intimate moments, and I'm not talking about my, my husband, 
I mean, if I've ever had other intimate moments, but like, I think, I feel like occasionally someone will like touch my belly button and it's like, oh, that's distracting and doesn't, it's, it took me out of the moment. Yeah. It it seems like a portal into my body that somehow is dangerous to me and I don't want anyone poking around my insides. Do you also have the feeling that I do, which is that somehow it's not like, not only is it a, but like it might actually be a microscopic portal. I don't know how much the belly button closes up 100%. Like oh, I, I'm pretty sure we're safe, I think. I don't think a lot of bad stuff <laughs> okay. is getting in through the belly button. I mean, who knows? I just don't want anybody's finger going yeah, into my stomach that deeply. No, they, doesn't, don't, they, don't, they don't get there. It doesn't feel good. No. But the back of the throat thing, I've, I'm not aware of that. Uh, James Leroy Wilson says, I miss, uh, excuse me, I miss jumpthesharkcom before TV Guide bought it out and killed it. I forgot that there was a website called jumptheshark.com. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that as and well. And it had a listing of like I think these specific episodes when each show jumped the shark. Right, right. And then I was unaware that TV Guide bought it and killed it, but I don't like when companies do that. I didn't know why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense why anyone would kill that. I know. I don't know. It would be a useful uh research it was a fun tool thing. to have. Yeah. yeah. Although I feel a little bit like Jumping the shark has jumped the shark. Yes, the whole I notion. agree. And also, it's sort of pointless now because there was a time where we shared a collective social shorthand mm-hmm. when it came to television because we all watched the same show and we had three networks and every there was there was a there was a touchstone between all of us where TV was commonality. Now it's more fragmented and 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 it separates us more than ever. Right. And I realized as I was watching the Emmys that I I've heard of all these shows, but I've only <laughs> seen half of them, maybe. Yeah. I guess I should watch more television. I never thought I'd say that in my life. <laughs> what shows are you into? Uh, I love The Deuce over on HBO. I have not seen that. I'm really enjoying that. I uh, Billions on Showtime I'm a big fan of. Uh, what else do I watch regularly? You know, I've got some really guilty pleasures until it just recently went off the air. Nashville, I watched it on both networks. Um Bill Maher, I watch him on Friday nights. I mean, I, I'm watching less television now than probably I ever have in my life. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I, I have heard great things about the marvelous Miss Maisel and and uh, Handmaid's Tale, and what was the Western that Jeff Daniels won for um, Godless. And you hear great things about these shows, but I just I can't manage the time to watch them. Yeah. So TV isn't as big a presence in my life as it used to be. C.T. Olson says, when I'm adding sugar, cream, whatever in my coffee, I put the stuff to be mixed in the cup first and then pour the coffee on top so the act of pouring does most of the mixing for me. I uh, I don't really do that. I have a Keurig. So as the coffee is getting is like dripping into the cup, then I'll kind of put my stuff in. I don't know why I do I guess I do it in the middle of it. You do it during the brewing process. Sometimes I do. Yeah. Wow. I'll put the sweetener in then. Hmm. And then I do the milk after. Huh. I, I'm a black coffee drinker, so I never really run into that problem. Of course problem. you are. That's so cool. Yeah, I am pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, I know my mom used to, whenever she used, she used cream, she would take the co- black cup of coffee, take the spoon, uh, stir it. Oh, so the cream has a, so it has a head start? And uh, Yeah, so it's stirring. And then she would take the cream and pour it in, and it would mix itself magically in front of your eyes. You could watch your coffee mix itself. Then she would drink it. I feel like all of this stuff that we're talking about just goes to show in the same way that like border collies are really intelligent dogs and you have to give them stuff to occupy them or else they'll be destructive. This is like our brains having too much energy, you know. (laughs) Uh, Jay Tobias says, if I'm buying a multiple product deal, 
for example, three for $2 or whatever at the grocery store, I'm always nervous I won't get the deal if they're not together at the checkout. <laughs> so something I've realized lately is when it says two for $5, I think what it means is each one is two fifty. dollars no. gross- no, you have no. to get both? Yes. That's the the reason they're putting that together. That deal yeah. is to move new move I inventory. Guess that makes sense. It's probably it's probably not much more, but it's probably two seventy nine right. for one. But if you get both, if you get both, then they'll knock a couple uh, cents off, and you get you get it for five bucks. So then, what happens if they're like far apart on the conveyor belt? The computer just knows. Well, sure, you're ringing everything up, <laughs> so it it's able to to function and and put those together after the fact. Sure. Well, now I will be worried about this. <laughs> I wasn't before. I did have. This is one of those small, tiny, kind of pathetic moments. But I was at the, but I regret that I'm about to share because you guys just tune out for the next 20 seconds. So the grocery store, and I had 10 items in my cart, and I thought I can use the 15 to 17 items or less, but like with impunity. Yes. Because I've been the person who had 15 items, and I got, I got this guy gave me a dirty look. No, and said not only a dirty look, he said something to me, and I can't remember what it was, but I know that I did a heated Instagram story about it. <laughs> um, but I was like, I counted. I'm I'm well within the legal, or I'm at the you know the threshold of it. But this time, it's like no one's going to say shit to me. I only have ten items. So under, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Demi in Cordova says, I often think if I was a selfish jerk, I'd be happier. I think that is a thought of most everyone who considers other people. Like, oh, this is a drag sometimes. It's it's a lot more work, yeah, to be considerate than it is just to, to blow through life and, yeah. and be a bull in a china shop and not give a shit about anyone else's feelings, yeah. It's simpler. But, but the payback, I think, is less, right? Because I don't think those people, I doubt they're happier, and I doubt they get as much love from the world than the people do who uh, are, are considerate and kind. I think you're right. When I think about all the people I know who I would consider selfish, who people who only worry about themselves, like they're all pretty miserable. And they're all pretty lonely, I think. Yeah. You know, you don't attract a lot of people when you behave that way. So the reason they think only about themselves largely is because they only have themselves to think about often. Exactly. And lastly, Lewis McKenzie says, when watching TV, I try to guess the next words they're going to say. Um, I don't really do that, but my husband has taken to nicknaming himself predict bot 3000 predict bot 2000 i forget like i think he keeps changing the number but we'll be watching a show and he'll does it you know doesn't guess the next word but he'll guess what they're going to say like what's going to happen in the plot plot and he's often right but then last night he had sort of his own personal come to jesus moment of like god it must be so awful watching tv with me how about this guy who's uh, guessing words i know but i think he does that internally i hope so yeah but why? What a waste! Just sit back and watch television. Enjoy it. Yeah, what they do did you... the work for you? <laughs> the one time you don't have to come up yeah. with something to say. That's just right. Enjoy their work. That's right. Just wait that extra half a second, right? And you'll find out. Ralph Garman, it was so delightful having you on my show. Thank you so much. Thank Allison. you what for a joy. for being on the show. Uh, we did a little bit of a plug for the Ralph Report before, but tell everyone what you want them to check out, where they can find you, etc. Yes. Well, you can follow me on Twitter, at Ralph Garman, of course. Same with Instagram. And the Ralph Report, my daily show, I've been doing since January. I'm really proud of it. It's, it's grown in leaps and bounds this year, and I really think it's entertaining. If you're looking for something to listen to, 
uh, on your drive home to or from work, um, or just you're into podcasts and you wanted someone to keep you company for an hour a day, that's what I do. So Monday through Friday, you can find me at patreon.com slash the Ralph Report, or you can go to our website, theralphreport.com. Perfect. And I have a book out, Tropical Attire and Courage and Other Phrases That Scare Me. If you go to my website, alisonrosen.com, there's many places to click that'll take you right to Amazon where you can get it available in all formats. If you like what you're he- hearing, subscribe. You know where and how to subscribe to a podcast, but a quick way is <laughs> iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. That's also where you can leave a nice review uh, and tell a friend. All those things help the podcast. I'm on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Allison Rosen. The show's Twitter feed where you can send your just me or everyone's hashtag JMOE is there's a lot of initials coming at you. It's A-R-I-Y-M-B-F, <laughs> which stands for Allison Rosen's your new best friend. Um, again, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, etc. Thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? 